enough with the black market for iPhones in Iran. On Thursday, May 30th, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. With presidential elections looming in Iran, the U.S. lifts sanctions on the sale of laptops, smartphones, and other communication devices. We'll hear why. Also today, a plea for strong U.S. diplomacy from a veteran of the world's hotspots. If we don't shape events, they shape us. It's uh, better to send in a dozen diplomats now than uh, to have to send in a couple of divisions of Army and Marines later. And later, many Brazilians have moved back home from the U.S. because of the economy. But some, like this woman who moved to Rio from Boston, are nostalgic for America. If you compare to Rio... (laughs) Bostonians are perfect drivers. (laughs) PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. To paraphrase a wise man, freedom of speech belongs to those who have the means to communicate. And if you're in Iran, the means to communicate are expensive. That's in part because of U.S. economic sanctions that for years have banned the sale of American consumer electronic products like laptops and mobile phones to Iranians. So would lifting that ban enable more democracy in Iran? That's the gamble the U.S. State Department and Treasury Department took today. Let Iranians by the gear. Iranian journalist Shirin Jafari joins me now. And Shirin, this move announced today has to be seen, I guess, in the context of upcoming Iranian elections. Can you explain the calculus here? When this sanction was in place, companies could not officially sell things such as laptops, cell phones, softwares and hardwares to Iran. But now what the U.S. has done is to lift this ban And we know that the election is going to be in 15 days. And we cannot but to think this is something that the U.S. has considered coming up to the election. We saw what happened in 2009 when people used their cell phones to document what was going on. And this is obviously something that the U.S. has considered. I mean, uh, this assumes that there are importer exporters out there who are ready to pounce on this opportunity. How much more accessible do you think electronic products like laptops and mobile phones will be for Iranians? I mean, there's a market in Iran. People love laptops, people love cell phones. And when I used to travel to Iran, I would see everybody have the most updated cell phones and I would look very outdated to them. (laughs) And so there's a market there, definitely. And before, it wasn't that people would not need laptops or cell phones. They did need it. They would get it on a black market. But what now this means is that this can be done officially through legal ways. I mean, you mentioned earlier how in the last round of elections uh, in Iran that mobile phones came into play quite a bit by uh, opposition forces in the streets. Uh, I mean, they were monitored by the government. So what difference would more hardware make to those who want to express their opinions or organize or do anything else with a laptop or mobile phone? So what this means, I think, is that by giving more ways for Iranians to trade with companies outside Iran, this would make it more difficult for the Iranian government to maybe keep track of all those communication devices and all those companies. So maybe this is something that would help 
Iranians get more actively involved with communicating through softwares and using those devices and communicating to the world. Mm. I, I know this uh, news is pretty fresh, but have you heard any reactions from Iranians? I have, actually. So the people that I've been hearing from, they are actually very happy. These are people, young people, who use things such as Facebook, Twitter. They are deeply, passionately <laughs> involved with softwares, games, and devices, and they are just happy. So Iranians are pretty happy about this. It seems like the Iranian government, though, would not smile on a move like this. Will they see it as provocative? Basically, any move that the U.S. government does, Iran can make it somehow look as an interference in inside affairs and can make it look as something that is against the government. And I'm sure we would be hearing more about this soon, especially because this is very close to the election time now. Right. Not too hard to see how they would not smile on this move. Shirin Jafari joins us regularly on The World to discuss all things Iran. Shirin, thank you. Thank you, Marco. Promoting American values, don't you know, is a common thread of U.S. diplomacy around the globe, even in nations at war like Afghanistan. But there are many different ways to meet that objective. And in Afghanistan, some American initiatives predate the current conflict. David Rode is a columnist for Reuters and the Atlantic Monthly. In his latest book, Beyond War, he describes a place in Afghanistan's Helmand province called Little America. That's where, in the 1950s, the U.S. committed itself to funding a massive irrigation and development project. Rode says American engineers were sent to Helmand to build a sort of Afghan breadbasket. They built schools, roads, an electrical system, and this big dam to sort of make the deserts of southern Afghanistan bloom. Several dozen Americans lived in southern Afghanistan for 30 years, from the 50s to the 1970s, roughly. They spent all this time on one of the largest economic development programs of the Cold War. Are we talking like the set of Mad Men, but in the desert? I mean, what did it look like? <laughs> the joke would be that it was Mad Men in mud, um, <laughs> meaning these mud brick homes. Some of them had sort of arched roofs that helped with the heat in southern Afghanistan. But there was some houses that unmistakably looked like sort of suburban uh, track houses in the middle of southern Afghanistan. There was a hotel they built, a swimming pool. And in their defense, I met all these Afghans that had wonderful memories of these times there. And this is a divide you see across Afghanistan now, educated sort of urban Afghans, you know, welcome development, want advances, want to be sort of part of the world. And they had great memories of this sort of American renaissance that was sort of at its peak in the late 60s and early 70s. You talk about so much waste involved in, in this project. Was it a boondoggle and turnkey operation or was there a true desire to help an underdeveloped country? So on the ground, they were trying. I think in Washington, it was much more political. There were signs that there was poor planning um, by some of the contractors in the 60s and 70s about not testing the soil. The Afghan government sort of ignored warnings about, you know, the program getting too big. So the politicians on both sides kept kind of doubling down. The Afghans wanted it to succeed for their domestic political purposes, and the U.S. felt it couldn't have a project fail, and they couldn't lose face to the Soviets. So by the summer of 79, the U.S. had abandoned Little America. 20 years of civil war then followed. What happened to Little America during that period and to the Afghans that lived there and this idea of creating, you know, the Helmand Valley Authority? 
it all sort of gradually fell apart. This massive earthen dam that was sort of the heart of the project, the Afghan engineers that had been trained by Americans jury-rigged it and kept the turbines running and kept it as a source of power for roughly 30 years um, when there was no American involvement. Now, when you went uh, to Little America in 2004, uh, you went with a private contractor named Charles Grader, a very colorful character from uh, right here around the Boston area. You call him a marker of how the American approach to development had changed since the Cold War. What was uh, Charles Grader's vision of how to move Afghanistan forward? He joined uh, the U.S. Agency for National Development when, when John Kennedy created it, and he really believed in development and economic growth as a tool to pe- make people's lives better. He was the last director of USAID in Afghanistan when the Soviets invaded in 79, but the only way he can come back post-2001 is to work as a contractor. And he described to me this sort of incredible shrinkage in the size of USAID. And more than that, the government agency was contracting everything to private companies where every project was done by a for-profit company, and it's, it doesn't work. I mean, using contractors, Afghans saw it as basically Americans coming to their country to make money for themselves and not to really help Afghans. As the time wears on, and by 2007 and 2008, people are very cynical that the U.S. isn't trying. I tried to argue that we're just not that competent, and they, they really grew more and more, I think, resentful of um, not the American presence, but the lack of results. Yeah. I mean, with American and British troops now pulling out of Helmand, leaving behind uh, the the vision the West had for little America and all of Afghanistan, what what for you is the takeaway from the story? To try to do less, that we can uh, have an impact with these programs, and that the most lasting thing we can do is train people. I mean, these these Afghans that kept the dam running, that ran uh, these, these irrigation systems across Afghanistan that somehow kept schools running, are amazingly resourceful people, and they know their country better than we ever will, and they they do want help. You know, I'm just concerned that we just throw up our hands, see it all as completely a disaster, and walk away. You know, there have been positive achievements. Tens of thousands of girls in Helmand are back in school. There's a huge number of new roads. It costs too much, you know, the American effort since 2001, too many lives and too many dollars. But there were some achievements in Afghanistan, and I hope Americans won't just see all foreign aid efforts as a complete waste of time. David Rode, his latest book is called Beyond War, Reimagining American Influence in a New Middle East. David, thanks a lot. Thank you. Regardless of what happens next in Afghanistan, all signs point to a smaller but continuing U.S. presence. The troops may withdraw, but American diplomats will continue to be stationed in Kabul, and they'll continue to be exposed to the dangers there. Yesterday, I spoke with former U.S. Ambassador Ryan Crocker, mostly about the violence in Syria and Iraq. But he also told me about the personal toll faced by diplomats in war zones. And Crocker should know his career in the Foreign Service reads like a rogues gallery of war zone postings. Afghanistan twice, Iraq twice, Syria, Kuwait, Pakistan and Lebanon, where he survived the 1983 Beirut embassy bombing. I've been called a crisis junkie. I wouldn't say that about myself, but I've felt that um, America's most important diplomatic work often needs to be done in some of the world's toughest places and under fire. So, you know, I've been pleased and proud to serve. I have to tell you, also pleased now to be teaching about it instead of doing it. Given that and what you've been through, do you think diplomats like soldiers suffer from trauma? Sure, we're we're human. And uh, the State Department is very aware of that. For Foreign Service personnel who um, are coming out of, say, Iraq or Afghanistan, they have a uh, debriefing 
by our medical folks and are told what to look for and possible symptoms that may develop later and uh, resources are available to them because uh, we're often shoulder to shoulder literally with our brothers and sisters in uniform run the same risks as we've seen in, in Benghazi and more recently in Kandahar, we're, we're losing people. You know, we swear the same oath that um, our military brethren do. It means we have to be ready to run the same risks and, uh, you know, we're, we're going to face the same challenges. I mean, we've done extensive coverage of uh, PTSD among veterans. Do you think you suffer in any way from trauma? You know, so far, so good. Um, I think the one time I, I really did have it, it was before we knew what it was, and that was after Beirut. But uh, whatever it was, passed along, and um, I think I'm um, living a normal life. Friends look at me strangely sometimes, but um, (laughs) I assume that's for other reasons. How much did the death of Ambassador Chris Stevens in Benghazi last year raise this issue of trauma among diplomats? Well, it was a huge loss to all of us. Uh, The officers of the uh, Near East Bureau at State are a pretty small tribe, and I'd known Chris ever since he joined the service 20 years ago. Sadly, it's the risk you run if you're going to do diplomacy in hard places. And, of course, we're right to ask questions. What went wrong? How can it be done better? But uh, more than the issue of trauma, uh, I think there's the fundamental question of how America uses its foreign service, its diplomats. And uh, I think we would be doing something dangerously wrong to say, well, because of this, we simply can't put uh, diplomats in harm's way. If we do that, then, um, you know, we're losing our effectiveness to shape the course of events in highly volatile and highly dangerous places. And if we don't shape events, they shape us. It's uh, better to send in a dozen diplomats now than uh, to have to send in a couple of divisions of Army and Marines later. And um, we need to accept that doing so means risk. You minimize it, but um, you're probably not going to avoid losing people. God knows we, we've lost so many of our, our service members. We were talking earlier about how much we share with them in these zones. Mm. Well, they're there to, to fight for America. We just do it in a different way. But we've got to be ready to run that risk, and, and the country has to be ready to let us run that risk. That was former U.S. Ambassador Ryan Crocker and his thoughts on the dangers faced by American diplomats around the globe. You're listening to The World from PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. You've heard about the tens of thousands of people killed during the last six years of Mexico's drug war. But during that same period, thousands have disappeared as well, and no one knows if they're dead or alive. Families of the victims say some have been abducted by criminals involved in the drug war, while others have disappeared after being taken into custody by the authorities. Either way, the families say Mexico's government hasn't done enough to find them. And the families have tried hard to pressure officials into action. They've gone on marches. They've staged hunger strikes. This week, Mexican officials responded. They announced the creation of a special investigative team to search for thousands of missing people. Shannon Young has more from Mexico. 
This week's announcement by the Mexican government was supposed to kick off the work of that new special investigative unit. But it left the families of the missing deeply disappointed. Beatriz Mejilla, whose daughter went missing last November, was among a group of relatives who attended the announcement in Mexico City. And she spoke up afterwards. If they want people who will do the work and investigate, they should give us the job because we will find our loved ones. They won't. They're just putting on a political show. Mejia and the other relatives had come to hear concrete operational details about the new investigative unit. The explanation they got from Attorney General Jesus Murillo Caram fell short of those expectations. He said there are still some legal things that need to be figured out, including the unit's location. But he promised that the agreement and the will are already there. The attorney general and other officials left the ceremony without saying what basic resources the new unit could count on, like an operating budget or even office space. One concrete figure they did offer was the number of investigators in the unit, 12. That number strikes many as grossly inadequate. According to official statistics released in February, more than 26,000 people went missing in Mexico in the six-year term of former President Felipe Calderón, a number comparable to the crisis of disappeared persons during Argentina's 1976 to 1983 military regime. Relatives of the disappeared say the Mexican government has failed to deal with the crisis head-on, forcing many relatives to conduct their own private investigations. Yolanda Moran spoke at a Mother's Day march earlier this month. She says her son was abducted by soldiers and never heard from again. And she says the investigative burden is squarely on the families. We've become the investigators. We are the ones who give the information to detectives, enough for them to have done their job already. But the last government wasted time. Now we want a new strategy that includes real casework and searches. It's not fair that we have to do this with our own resources. Private investigations have their limits, especially when it comes to arresting suspects, exhuming possible mass grave sites, and forensics work. A common complaint among families who have carried out investigations is that authorities have failed to act in a timely manner on information they've provided, which could help solve or advance their cases. At Monday's ceremony, Attorney General Murillo Caram said one aim of the new special investigative unit was to destroy the bureaucratic labyrinth families encounter. He also said that oversight by victims groups would play a key role in this regard. But families of the missing are tired of what they say are empty promises. Even the new unit unveiled on Monday is an example of that. Its creation was first announced three months ago by Mexico's Interior Ministry. But even now, almost everything about how the unit is supposed to work remains unclear. Atanasio Rodriguez, who participated in a recent hunger strike by relatives, says people are growing more and more frustrated in their dealings with the authorities. They're always giving us the runaround. We don't want them to keep playing with our pain and with our finances. They send us around like ping pong balls to different offices while nobody solves anything. No one ever gives us the hope of being able to find out what actually happened to our children. 
With this week's announcement, the government of President Enrique Peña Nieto is promising once again to change that. Just how long the special investigative unit takes to begin operating and the way the unit handles cases will reveal how serious President Peña Nieto is about keeping that promise. For The World, I'm Shannon Young. You can see how the families of Mexico's missing are trying to pressure the authorities. We have a slideshow at theworld.org. We have a different kind of story out of Mexico right now. Among the many threats to their safety that people in Mexico City have to contend with daily are the millions of cars on the roads. Many drivers in the Mexican capital are not exactly respectful of pedestrians. So when a car enters your crosswalk, who's going to protect you? Piato Nito. That's who. He's a self-appointed protector of pedestrians in Mexico City. You'll recognize him. He's the guy in a cape and Mexican wrestling mask. Nicholas Casey wrote about him for The Wall Street Journal. Nicholas, how'd you find out about Piato Nito? Well, I was actually just looking around on Twitter, and I noticed that this fellow had a Twitter account putting up pictures of himself, pushing cars back, going out into the street, walking people across the street. And then I discovered, actually, he was operating in my own neighborhood, uh, La Condesa in Mexico City. I usually cover the drug war, and it was great to actually see a good story that was taking place uh, in my own backyard. So just who is Piatonito when he's out of costume? Uh, Is he a mild-mannered resident of Mexico City? He's a 26-year-old guy named Jorge Cañez. He's studying for a political science degree in Mexico City and is also working at a consultancy where he advises the government on urban planning policies. And I guess the fact that he dresses like a professional wrestler, Lucha Libre style, says something about how Mexicans feel about wrestling. If you think wrestling in the U.S. is a little bit odd, you should (laughs) see what's done in Mexico where they wear masks and have an announcer that says kind of silly things while people throw popcorn and drink large uh, Coronas with uh, peppers and salt in them. Believe it or not, there's been a few other wrestler heroes in the past, starting out with this guy who was called El Santo, who started making a number of movies where he would beat up bad guys. There was another guy named Super Barrio Gomez who came (laughs) out after the 1985 earthquake to protect uh, Mexican residents They're actually by going to city council meetings and trying to lobby for fair housing after a lot of people lost their homes. In costume? In costume, always in costume. What about yourself? Have you ever had any trouble crossing the street in, in Mexico City? Oh, yeah, I've had plenty of trouble crossing the street. I've lived in Mexico City for about four years, and I think the first couple of years I just kept my head down. And, and as I got to see the city as my home, I got a little bit more aggressive with people. I mean, I remember once almost getting hit by a taxi cab, making a right-hand turn and kicking the cab as he went by. The guy actually got out and started yelling at me and wanted to pick a fight, started calling me every name in the book, and I just told him that you know he needed to slow down. It can be trouble, especially if you're not wearing a mask on. People take this stuff very seriously. Yeah, that's when you say Piatonito to the rescue. That's right. I was looking around for him, but unfortunately, it was nowhere to be found. Nicholas Casey wrote about Piatonito, Mexico City's pedestrian protector for The Wall Street Journal. We have a link to the photos and video at theworld.org. Nicholas, thanks a lot. Hey, thanks. You're listening to The World on PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, same-sex marriage gets complicated for immigrants. Also, why Indian Americans are such good spellers. 
And later, Google goes to the Galapagos. We actually took a van, then horseback, and then hiked with the Street View Trekker backpack right into the crater of the volcano. This is an active volcano, mind you. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's that time again. Get a pas. Get a pas. Is this French? It's from French. Get a pas. G-U-E-T-A-P-E-N-S. Get a pas. That was the winning moment in the 2012 Scripps National Spelling Bee. I don't know what Getapal is, but tonight there's going to be a new winner and a new word. And for the past five years, the winners have been Indian Americans. As to why? Well, who better to turn to than reporter Kavita Pillay? She's Indian American and, in her time, proud winner of a fifth-grade spelling bee at her school in Kavita. Where were you? In Rocky River, Ohio. Okay. So this question has been asked many times before. And there have been many answers, Kavita. Why are Indian Americans so good at spelling? I think one maybe less noted but very interesting factor is that a lot of these kids, pretty much all of them, are being raised by parents who were educated in India, where they were learning English as a second or maybe third language, and where they also had a very strong economic and social incentive to learn it at a very high level. These professionals are then coming to the U.S. and having kids who have the advantage of parents who've figured out these trickier elements of English in order to be able to perform as professionals here, and the kids are native English speakers. So it kind of makes sense that there's a lot of uh, Indian American spelling bee champions. So among a certain class of Indians in India, I mean, there's no, no competition. Is everybody just like a mad speller? Well, you could say there's a lot of exposure to different languages, but these days you see kind of a breakdown of spelling. In large part, that's been accelerated by technology. Because of technology, there's so much text speak going on in India as everywhere. But it's particularly interesting in India because it's home to the world's second largest population of English language speakers. And you also see Roman script, you know, our 26-letter alphabet, all over the place. So Indians are really familiar with just being flexible about how to spell things. So when I'm writing, I'm, I'm very conscious about my spelling. I don't want to mess anything up because, it, in my opinion, it says something about your ability to make things perfect and nice and, you know, keep things neat. Are Indians the same way when they're writing, even in casual kind of emails? For a lot of Indians in India, especially young Indians, you see this text speak. It's, it's really pretty rampant. This is an excerpt from an email that my mom received from a family friend's son, who's an Indian guy in his mid-20s. He is fluent in English. He was educated in English. But he wrote to her after she uh, recently retired and said, what you been up to? How do you spend your retired life? And there's no capitalization in this. There's 
barely any punctuation. There's a lot of run-on sentences in this email. And what is spelled W-A-T. U is spelled with the letter U. Up to is becomes one word. All right. So he's already out of the first round. Yeah. But I contact, <laughs> exactly. I contacted him to ask this, what turned out to be a kind of naive question. And I said, well, you know, you're doing this with your friends and, and people you know. Well, do you do this with your boss? And his answer was, of course not. And I think for these Indian kids who are growing up learning two, three, maybe four languages very early, this is just like adding on a new language. So how do you account for this big disconnect between the attitude in rules to spelling in India and Indians here in America, Indians and Indian Americans, who just dominate these spelling bees? I think what seems to be a gulf between the two actually reveals a lot about identity between Indian Americans here and then Indians in India. I put this question to a guy named Ravi Satkalmi, in addition to being a friend and a fellow Indian American. He was also a Fulbright scholar to India, and he was looking at patterns of reverse immigration. And his take was that for Indian Americans, they take a lot of pride in being able to come here and dominate this very American endeavor and say, kind of, we've arrived, like we can excel at this. Meanwhile, for Indians in India, the tech industry and the software industry were really able to take hold in India because there are so many high-caliber English speakers. So that has kind of given Indians a new swagger on the global stage. And I, I think that at least maybe subconsciously, this new flexible way of spelling the language of the former colonizer, you know, the, the British who helped bring English to India, I think it's also a way of Indians asserting that, hey, we've arrived and we are ready to make English our own. Kavita Pillay, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Marco. And I couldn't let Kavita go without challenging the former fifth grade champ to our own spell-off, moderated by the world's language editor, Patrick Cox. It went something like this. Fantochini. Okay. F-A-N-T-O-C-C-I-N-I. That is awesome. Nice job. Tokamak. Um, or maybe Tokamak or Tokamak. Uh, T-A-C-H-O-M-A-C-H. I like the sound of that much better than the way it's actually spelled. <laughs> yep, to hear the whole thing, I won't tell you who wins, but it wasn't pretty. You can check out our latest World in Words podcast. You'll find it at theworld.org. Today's GeoQuiz takes us to the equator. We're looking for a seahorse-shaped island that's part of the Galapagos Archipelago, a few hundred miles off the coast of Ecuador. Naturalist Charles Darwin sailed to the Galapagos nearly 200 years ago to investigate and map out the harbors, collect rocks, and study birds. It proved to be one of the most important travel layovers in scientific history. Recently, a team from Google went there to retrace Darwin's steps and to capture a 360-degree perspective of the place. In a few minutes, we'll talk about the project with the head of the Street View team. But first, we want you to name the largest island in the Galapagos. It was named in honor of a 15th century Spanish queen who was also a big fan of Columbus, hint, hint, and the equator runs smack through the middle of it. Got it? Back in a few with the answer. This next story shows how the global economic crisis of the last few years didn't hit all nations the way it hit the U.S. When the American economy took a nosedive five years ago, Brazil's economy hardly skipped a beat. With this economic shift in fortunes, migration patterns between the two countries shifted as well. But it's more complicated than that, as the world's Jason Margolis found out. Anderson Zaca is a Brazilian-born fashion photographer and filmmaker. 
His company is called The Clickers. Zaka works in Sao Paulo, part-time. He also works in New York. He says every few months he hops on a plane and heads 10 hours south. There's a lot more business there, and the clients are willing to spend money in things that uh, the U.S. markets no longer wants to spend money. So that's why I travel back and forth. Zaka, who has a green card, keeps coming back to New York because, well, he's a New Yorker now. He's been here since he was 17. He's now 36. I can't adjust to the lifestyle in Brazil anymore. The infrastructure and the lack of transportation, it's really chaotic, and I can't adapt to that. If I'm going to move to a place that doesn't have transportation, I'll move to Hawaii. Zaka's situation has become increasingly common. Eduardo Sequeira coordinates the Transnational Brazilian Project at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. He also goes back and forth. Sequeira says while Brazil might be a new land of opportunity for expat Brazilians, many who go back are having a hard time readapting. The issue of security and safety, for example, Brazil is a lot more insecure in terms of violence in the streets. So in the U.S., in most places, you don't have to be as guarded as you would be in a major city in Brazil, or even a smaller city. So all that changes, and a lot of people cannot readapt. Marcia Heiss knows what this is like. We met for coffee in Rio de Janeiro. Heiss is an attorney. Six years ago, she moved to Florida, then Massachusetts. She returned to Brazil two years ago. She's not crazy about being back. For one thing, she says she can't handle the day-to-day corruption. For example, this is what she says happens when people get pulled over for drunk driving. They give money to the police and stuff, little corruptions like that. I don't agree. Even the sober drivers in Rio bother her. I just don't drive anymore here. I I can't drive here anymore because it's crazy, totally crazy. I'm so afraid. But you think the driving in Boston is good? I mean, so good. If you compare to Rio, (laughs) Bostonians are perfect drivers. (laughs) Heis can make a lot more money working as an attorney in Brazil. She also likes being closer to her family in Rio. And she doesn't have a job yet in the U.S. Still, she's moving back to Boston again in August. Permanently. (laughs) Maybe, given the way things are going in Brazil. It's not just the well-educated who are hopping back and forth between countries. It's something of a revolving door for working-class Brazilians as well. Natalicia Tracy, who directs the Brazilian Immigrant Rights Center in Boston, says a lot of blue-collar Brazilians who used to be in Massachusetts are now gone. A lot of people had bought homes. They lost their homes. And I think people felt a little bit lost and disillusioned with the economy. She says Brazilians used to arrive here, and within a few days they'd have two full-time jobs. Now they're getting by with one job or even part-time work. Still, she says, as one Brazilian leaves, a new one arrives, because many working-class Brazilians aren't benefiting from their home country's economic boom. What we're seeing in Brazil with the economy is, has created a space for people who are already on the edge of middle class to grow. However, that growth hasn't yet impact in a positive way the lower class, low-wage workers, especially people who are living away from large cities. That's why we're still seeing people coming in. And another group going out, undocumented Brazilians. Eduardo Sequeira says they've left the U.S. because of the political climate here. With the persecution of immigrants, the climate of fear, 
many decided to go back because they couldn't stand it anymore. Many were deported, by the way. And at one point, flights of Brazilians were sent back home. And flights of Brazilians are coming to the United States. Anderson Zaka says when he does the JFK to Sao Paulo shuttle, he sees quite a few others on the plane who are also living this transnational life. But most of the others are Brazilian-based entrepreneurs trying to make it in the United States. Because they feel like the Brazil market, it's amazing, but it's not quite going to take them to where... You know, like when they say sky's the limit and Brazil is not quite the sky yet. So if you accomplish your goals in Brazil, you still have to conquer the world. And that means more Brazilians heading back to the U.S. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis from Boston and Rio. The largest island in the Galapagos chain is in our sights for today's GeoQuiz. Raleigh Seamster was recently there. She led a Street View team from Google Maps to survey and map the Galapagos. So first things first, Raleigh, this seahorse-shaped island that we were talking about, the largest of the archipelago, what's its name? Isabella Island. Isabella Island. So that's the answer to the GeoQuiz today. Did you also map Isabella Island as part of uh, uh, your mapping of the Galapagos? Absolutely. We went to, up to the Sierra Negra volcano there. I believe it's one of the largest craters in the world. And we actually took a van, then horseback, and then hiked with the Street View Trekker backpack uh, right into the crater of the volcano. Uh, this is an active volcano, mind you. And uh, we walked through all these prehistoric ferns and uh, got to the Minas de Zufre which are naturally occurring sulfur mines there inside the crater. Wow, what an adventure. I mean, I'm just curious. You mentioned this Street View backpack. What kind of challenges did the Galapagos pose for, for Street View? Because I don't uh, see the Street View car that occasionally rolls around my neighborhood being able to navigate what I think I know of the Galapagos. Absolutely. So for that very reason, the Street View Trekker was developed. It's a wearable backpack that takes the Street View technology that you see on cars and shrinks it down into a smaller form factor, very portable. So you can strap it on. It's about 42 pounds, uh, has a camera mounted on it, and you can actually walk through trails. You can climb over lava rocks like we were doing and just walk off roads. It allows us to take Street View into really remote um, and hard-to-access places. So why do this? I mean, I think of Google Street View as being able to show me landmarks of a place I'm headed. But, I mean, most people will never get to the Galapagos. So why? Well, our goal with Google Maps is to create the most comprehensive, accurate, and usable map in the world. And that includes going to these remote places that you or I may never travel to, like the Galapagos, like the Amazon River, the Arctic, Mount Everest, and more. So that's why we took the Street View Trekker backpack to the Galapagos, so that our Google Maps users can experience them from their desktop computer or their mobile phone. Do you think Darwin would be able to look at your street view and, and actually recognize the environment he saw two centuries ago? He would probably be able to identify some of those species that he was looking at uh, all that time ago. We think that you're going to be able to kind of zoom right into the blue webbed feet of the blue-footed boobies, see the frigate birds, see the marine iguanas really close up. So hopefully you know, Darwin or even modern citizen scientists will be able to do some species identification with the imagery. What's the most indelible image or memory uh, of a place that you have? Probably on North Seymour Island. It's a really important nesting site for, um, for some of these birds, these iconic birds like the blue-footed booby, which if you haven't guessed already is one of my favorite animals. <laughs> yeah, I got that. <laughs> um, but as well as magnificent frigate birds that have this 
big, brilliant red throat sack. Um, and so all of these animals uh, are nesting all over the island, and we were able to just walk so close to them in their natural habitat and, and see them nesting. So that was absolutely fantastic. You also went underwater as well, is that right? Yes, that's absolutely correct. So, um, with, with the Google Street View backpack? Uh, well, <laughs> no, we didn't dunk the backpack in the water. <laughs> um, there's actually a different set of technology uh, that can take Street View underwater. And so when we were planning this trip, you know, we were planning places on land and we really realized these are islands and part of the whole life that exists there, the biodiversity is underwater. And we felt we just wouldn't be able to map it as comprehensively if we didn't take imagery underwater in important marine conservation sites around the islands. Raleigh Seamster, back from the Galapagos. She led a street view team from Google to digitally map the islands. Thank you, Raleigh. Good to speak. Good to speak with you. Thank you. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. This has been a week of yes and no to gay marriage around the globe. France saw its first ever same-sex wedding yesterday. And today, Nigeria passed a bill banning gay marriage. Here in the U.S., the push is on to legalize marriage for same-sex couples. And it'll be a trickier situation for couples that include a foreign-born partner. Currently, that partner cannot get a green card through their relationship, but a Supreme Court decision expected next month could resolve that. But for now, though, many of these couples are in a legal limbo. Emma Jacobs of station WHYY has a story of one couple in Philadelphia. Anton Tanimaharja and Brian Anderson already know what might happen this summer. They had a dress rehearsal two years ago, not long after the two men started dating in Philadelphia. Things were good until Tana Maharja from Indonesia revealed his secret. He showed Anderson a letter ordering him out of the U.S., deported by February 14th of 2011, Valentine's Day. At the time, it was just 10 days away. But if you want me to stay here, I said, I'm going to fight for our love. And fight they did. So, you know, I guess that's kind of a defining point of our relationship is, yeah, we, right, we want to fight for what we have. We want to be together. What are we going to do? The couple tell their story at an Indonesian restaurant in Philadelphia. It's also where they had their first date. I want to have to have a fried noodle, a fried rice. To fight Tanu Maharja's deportation, there were nights of letter writing and filling out paperwork. Tanu Maharja half jokes about the stress of it, that it was like trying to survive a reality TV show contest, he says. And it seemed that he lost when his departure date arrived. He was actually heading to the airport to go back to Indonesia when his lawyer called. His deportation was halted for now. And now the couple sees two possible solutions. One is through immigration reform and that Congress will approve letting same-sex couples petition for legal status for their spouse. But that's not likely. Robert Gittleson, head of Conservatives for Comprehensive Immigration Reform, says adding a provision for gay couples is a deal-breaker. Uh, for us, it's it, you know it would be extremely unfortunate. We really want to have immigration reform. I mean, for me, this is my life. This is my most important issue. But while I understand uh, that there's going to be a lot of disappointment in the LGBT community, and I, and I have sympathy for that, there are other ways that they can get what they want. What's that other possibility for same-sex couples? The Supreme Court. In June, it'll likely rule on a challenge to the Defense of Marriage Act, also known as DOMA. It's a federal law defining marriage as solely between a man and a woman. 
If the court finds DOMA unconstitutional, then legally married gay couples could see green cards. The Philadelphia couple has mixed expectations. Well, I'm optimistic about it. He's not He's very optimistic. Like, because it's like I'm leading actor, you know what I'm saying? And you do not know what it's going to be. And Tana Maharja knows that beyond his relationship, something else is at stake, his identity. He left Indonesia in part because it's tough to be gay there. In some provinces, it's illegal to be gay. There have been some violent attacks against gay men. While Tana Maharja talks, he rests his hand on Anderson's arm, something he wouldn't do back home. You cannot be coming out like, no, I can't touch your brain like this, right? If somebody saw me out there, they're going to be like a little bit problem. In the U.S., Tana Maharja feels so comfortable about his relationship with Anderson that he allowed CNN to do a story about them and his fight to stay. But Tana Maharja didn't realize that Indonesian newspapers would pick up that story and that his sexuality, long hidden from his family back home, is now widely known. But deportation back to Indonesia still hangs over him. Sometimes it's mess my life because I cannot concentrate one thing. To relax, the couple tries to make the most of their time together, like tonight at the Indonesian restaurant. They're regulars and usually stick around after all the other patrons have left. We do. All the time. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> I love the food. It's I love good. the food. We love this place. It's like this is our memory place. If they're granted a future here, there's no doubt they'll make more memories here. For The World, I'm Emma Jacobs, Philadelphia. Finally today, some music from Norway that's pretty hard to classify, courtesy of our guest DJ, Marius Asp. For this DJ pick, I've chosen one of the most interesting trios in Norway over the last 10 years, Splash Girl, consisting of Andreas Stensland Löve on piano and electronics, Jo Bergermyre on double bass and Andreas Lønmo Knutsur on drums. Their fourth album is called Field Day Rituals. Let's listen to a snippet from one of the most instantly accessible tracks, Dulcimer. Splash Girl's music is not easily classifiable. Obviously, there's a foundation of jazz in the trio's sound, but traces of Scandinavian folk, contemporary classical, and experimental drone music are bustling underneath throughout the album. Melodically, there are even occasional hints of doomy metal, which may not be as surprising as it seems given that their producer Randall Dunn is perhaps best known for his work with high-concept metal bands such as Sun, Wolves in the Throne Room, and Earth. When all of these influences pull together in the same direction, the results are mesmerizing. Just listen to an excerpt from Mass, one of my favorites off the album.
There's a somber, sometimes threatening quality to Splash Girl's sound. The stark, minimalistic approach is balanced by both beauty and dissonance, and there's a lot going on in the spaces of these songs. Most of them do require dedicated listening before evolving into their full complex beauty, but the effort is most certainly worth it. So be sure to check it out, Field Day Rituals, the Norwegian trio Splash Girl's fourth album. To my ears, easily their most satisfying so far. I was thinking Frank Zappa, if he came from the Arctic Circle. Splash Girl was chosen for us by reviewer Marius Asp of NRK in Norway. For more picks from Marius and our other guest DJs, come on over to theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. By the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.